Welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockman Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. Welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike touring, get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, and learn the pros and cons of certain gear, bikes, and bike setups. I hope you enjoy this podcast and that my guest stories fill your journeys with hours of listening. If you're new to the bike touring scene and considering going on a tour, I hope this podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. In the meantime, enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. For this week's episode, just a few points of things to to let you know about. Since the last episode came out, lots of things are happening with regards to bikepacking at the moment. Uh, Currently, one of the biggest things I know of is that Sofian Sahili is rocking the Silk Road Mountain Race. He Last time I checked, he was in first place. I think he's got one more checkpoint to get through. So I'm not sure if he's still in first place, but hey, that was where it was when I checked. Other news, Lail Wilcox, she stopped her attempt at the Tour Divide FKT. Unfortunately, lots of forest fires in the northwest of the U.S. at the moment, and it was just uh, making it unbearable and hard to breathe with her asthma. So definitely a bummer. It would have been really cool to see how she progresses on that, and hopefully she has the chance, time, opportunity to do it again at some point and uh, make another run for it. What I would like to do is I would like to quickly thank my newest patron, Corey Kawa, He has just signed up as a patron to help support the podcast. And that's really cool. Really great. Super appreciated. And for anybody else out there, if you do want to support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com front slash bike tour adventures and just take it from there. There There's some different tiers and whatnot. I'd also like to thank the sponsors of the Bike Tour Adventures podcast, Opus Bikes, Redshift Sports, and Seven Mesh Cycling Apparel. So Redshift Sports has been kind enough to offer Bike Tour Adventures listeners a 15% discount on all their products just by using the code BTA15. And I think if you order something like $80 worth of stuff, which is pretty much like any of the component stuff they make is more nuts. So if you spend, I think, $80 US, you get free shipping. Check it out, though. Not 100% sure on where they ship to, but could be worth it for you. So, on to the show. 
In this episode of the Bike Tour Adventures podcast, I have the chance to speak with Leah Goldstein as she shares her journey with the listeners. As a three-time Race Across America participant, Leah this year finished first overall in what can safely be described as one of the toughest bike races in the world. Leah, welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, I usually like to ask people about their background and who they are and where they're from and all that. So maybe you want to just tell us about yourself. Well, I'm, my background in sports started when I was really young. Um, I started Taekwondo when I was nine. And by the time I was 12, I was a junior national champion. And then I transitioned into kickboxing when I was like 13. Um, and I really excelled in that sport. At 17, I was a world um, kickboxing champion. And then I left Canada to join the IDF, the Israel Defense Force, where I um, trained um, elite units such as the commando and foreign um, different units coming in from the United States, Canada, from Europe. And then I transitioned to the police force. Um, I worked for an intelligence agency called the Belouche, um, which is like a spying agency internally. And that's where I discovered the sport of duathlon. And that's kind of the bike comes in. So I excelled in that. And then when I retired from Israel and I, you know, kind of worked outside of the country, that's when I started to pro bike race. Then I raced with the national team, Canadian national team for about 10 years. And then I transitioned into ultra endurance racing after seeing race across America on television. Okay. And so you, you went to uh, Israel and I mean, I remember you mentioning in one of your things that you had to like seek permission to leave the police force. Is that because you were tied to like a contract kind of like you would be in the military in Canada or something? Um, well, I did, I did most of the training, like in the military, um, you're kind of, it's kind of selected. There's a selection process, right? They kind of take somebody that they think you might be, you know, positioned good to work in internal affairs or external affairs. Um, you're more of a trainer, you know, they, they look at personality and everything. So in the beginning I, I was positioned in a base called base eight, which was, um, it was one of the hardest bases to get into, to be, become one of the instructors there, Um, so I did, like I said, I trained the commando there. And then when I left that type of work and I did some, um, work for the military to intelligence work. And then I transitioned eventually, um, to the police department where I worked for an organization called the Belouche and the Mm. Belouche again is a spying agency. Um, and, and that's, yeah, I mean, it was different operations, you know, mostly again, internally, Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if I can talk too much about don't, that. Don't um, yeah. And yeah. So then <laughs> at 32, I decided that I wanted to be a pro bike racer. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. Kind of like the FBI versus CIA or something. FBI being more of the internal like thing. That, yeah. <laughs> Neat. All right. And um, so you, you uh, got into duathlon just, I, I think I read through, through the stressors of the everyday job and just being on a bike. Um, somebody saw that you were, you were natural and kind of convinced you to, to start racing, yeah? Well, I mean, I actually got introduced to the bike because a lieutenant in, in base eight when, during the military, I was always training because the position that I had, it's not like you stand there with a clipboard and you watch all the soldiers right. doing with it. You're doing it with them, right? Because you're sent on, on treks in the desert, you know, for 30, 40, 50 kilometers, you know, so you're, you have to be in very good shape, right? Mm-hmm. To, to be able to do that kind of training with them. And so when I wasn't training troops, I was training myself in our, you know, in our training area, our obstacle courses and in the, in the base. 
And a lieutenant there, um, he noticed that I was always training and probably very, very fit, you know, and he was the national champion in the sport of triathlon. And he asked me to go for a bike ride because he saw that I commuted with my bike. Okay. And I really didn't want to go, but I felt bad. I said yes. We went on this bike ride and I was on a piece of junk, old 50 pound piece of crap, you know, and I could kind of hold my own. And, you know, that's kind of how I got into it. Then he started coaching me. And then that's how, you know, the oh, duathlon nice. started happening. And I and I excelled. And part of the reason why I excelled is because I didn't have much competition. Like I was a big fish in a small pond, right? It's mm-hmm. when I left the Middle East to come to North America, especially Europe, where I got my my butt kicked a bit. Yeah. What distances were you racing duathlon? Um, I used to race some duathlon the, in Malaysia. Yeah, so. yeah, it was the short, it was the 535. It 535? was the 5130, yeah. So it was a pretty pretty short one, right? Yeah, I like yeah. that one because I'm not a huge runner. So 5K <laughs> twice is like, okay, I can deal with it. Ten, I've done yeah, like 1060, 1060 10s and I'm just like, I hate life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Amazing. And um, so you moved back to Canada and then you raced professionally for a while. What was that like to, to jump into the, I think uh, you could, I guess you could say to become a small fish in a big pond. Well, I mean, that was, that was actually a hard transition because like up until that point, like I, I excelled in a lot of the things that I did, right. You know, from the Taekwondo, the, the kickboxing, even in the military, I had set new records. Um, mm. The duathlon, I did really well, won national championships. Then I come into pro racing and, you know, with, with pro racing, you know, it's not just a matter of how fit you are. There's many elements to it, right. Cause it's very much a team sport. So it's like a chess game. You have to think before you make your moves, right? You know, like what's going on in that peloton, in that group of riders. A lot of people don't know that it can be like war in there. So, Mm. you know, I mean, I would go into these races when I first started and I'd come in so last that I wouldn't even know where the finish was. I'd see my car in an empty parking lot. I go, okay, damn, this must be it, right? So (laughs) where did everybody go? (laughs) (laughs) It took me about, and it happened more than once, by the way. It was embarrassing, but it took me about, I'm going to say six or seven years before I kind of reached my you know starting to reach my peak and I had the best years um as a pro racer actually at the ages of like 37 38 39 and 40 right? Where, and, and when typically later. people would say oh you're too old to be a pro racer because like the usually young oh, 20s yeah, I mean, with the national team honestly I was told that I say oh you kind of missed the bow you can't you know you're not a good sprinter uh, you know you don't climb very well you're not very good on the flats I, I heard it all right but you know, when you're determined to do something, the best, you know, your best way of revenge is really to prove people wrong. So mm-hmm. I worked, I had to work really hard at that sport kind of to get where I got to, but it was, okay. it was a long process. And I think people know that in pro racing, it's like, takes you like four or five years just to develop yourself for that particular type of racing. And then you start to excel, right? Yeah. So, yeah, you know, I, think I think I had read like just to have physiological change takes a few years before that starts happening because exactly. you got you to adapt exactly. your body. I used to yeah. live in Asia and, and, um, yeah, I'm not a good climber either. Those little tiny Asian guys I would cycle with, they could climb, man. They would just be gone. And I'm like, what happened? <laughs> yeah. Well, that, I mean, it's true. Like, I, like, you know, I mean, that was one of my weaknesses when I got in. I was a good time trialist. That's what a lot of teams picked me up for. But to be an all around, you know, a GC rider, general classification rider, you need to climb. Mm. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, one, one year I heard some other director criticizing me. So, I had, you know, hired a climbing coach. I dropped about 10 pounds and I ate, breathed, slept climbing our, you know, we have a big mountain here called, called Silver Star. And I came back the following year, like just setting new records and, you know, winning hilly races. So oh, wow, anything nice. is possible. Just yeah. Sometimes you have to make that transition, right? You know, mm-hmm. but definitely the weight factor has a big part of it for sure. 
And with all this biking and stuff, have you ever gone on a normal bike tour, you know, with saddlebags and... Actually, I have. I did oh, nice. um, Canada to California with it on a tour thing, but we didn't do the 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 camp thing. We kind of cheated. We did the hotel thing. Okay. But we rode about like 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 nine to twelve hours a day mm-hmm. and toured. You know, it was actually really fun. It's a great way to see the country, right? Because you can yeah. stop and meet new people. It was it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I think that there's no wrong way to tour. So like some people do the hotels and stuff, and I think. It really just comes to down to to what is your means, you know? Like some people, if they're going to tour for a year, well, you can't do that. But if you're going to tour yeah. a oh, shorter sure. distance, why not enjoy it if you have the, the financial means to do it? So what year did you come back to Canada in the first place? No, I came back to Canada, oh boy, um, like in the early 2000s. Okay. That's when I started, yeah. And then 2011, you did the first ram, your first RAM, yeah? Right. Correct. Yeah. What, what prompted that? You said you saw something on TV and you were like, this looks punishing enough for me? Or? Well, you know, as a as a pro racer, I was always better in the longer races, right? I always excelled kind of in like, you know, especially in Europe, like you, like the, the Tour de France. I did that. It was called the, the Grand Bouquel. It's a different name, but the same idea was 17 stages. Um, Hewlett Packard, another long women's stage race in, in North America, in the uh, United States and Boise, Idaho. And I always excelled in those longer races, right? So I knew that type of racing would be more suited for me and also my ability to be very functional on very little sleep or no, or zero sleep, which mm-hmm. is a huge asset in ultra endurance racing. That's what you need. So I just think I was more prone to do something like that and I can really push myself and suffer. So okay. <laughs> that's the recipe for an ultra endurance racer. <laughs> <laughs> Lack of sleep, suffering and keep going. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> So what were some of the takeaways from your first race that you were able to incorporate the second time around? What, like, I mean, there must have been a huge learning curve just in that first Are you talking distance. about Ram Race Cross yeah. America? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I went into that race completely green. And so so was my crew. Nobody had done anything like that before. So we go in there and I'm thinking I'm going to win this thing, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, so, I mean, the first three days, I don't know if you know what the condition called Shermer's Neck, uh-huh. right? Is what I've happens when, you know, for people who don't understand what that is, it's like all muscles that, you know, basically hold your head up, they collapse, they're so exhausted that your head just drops and you can't, you know, you can't see the road because your chin mm-hmm. is basically rested on your chest, right? So, yeah. I mean, and my crew was saying, you know, we have to pull out. You know, it was only three days into the race. There's still like over 2,000 miles to go, right? And I go, no, I don't care if I have to crawl across the, the, you know, across the country. We're finishing this thing. So how they got me across is they basically shaved me from year to year. Okay. And I had hair on the top of my head. So they took tensor bandage. They French braided it into the top of my hair. And with that, they pulled my head back. And they tied my head to the back of my heart rate monitor. So it kind of had like a bobble head. That's a pretty good idea. That's pretty creative. (laughs) For the next seven days. So, I mean, that was one thing is learning the neck thing. Also sleep patterns, you know, like, you know, of, 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 I mean, there's everything. I mean, when you do Mm -hmm. it for the first time, it's just a learning experience, right? You know, so that's why I, you know, when I retired after that race and I took eight years off, it was always in the back of my head, you know, you got to go back to Ram and, mm. and try and do better, right? Because you get more satisfaction, I think, the second, third, fourth, fifth time into the race. Because every time you learn something new. And I do notice that, like, when you look at some of the top names in um, in Ram, you know, they're there almost every year. And I think they're just building on that experience, right? Just micro improvements or that kind of thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, I mean, I trained for Ram now. I mean, last year was kind of a write-off because of COVID. Mm -hmm. So, you know, no one could race. However, I kept training as if I was racing Ram because okay. the benefits of that will lead on to the next year, right? So that's why I've decided, like, for next year, I'm not going to race Ram. I'm going to do the sister race called Race Across the West. Okay. And a little bit, a few shorter races. And then I'll come back in 2023 just to have a mental break and just work a little bit more on speed power just yeah. fine-tune the things that need to be worked on yeah because i think the race uh race across the west is fair bit shorter than ram right so yeah you can it's just like, i think 900 miles so it's okay. like one quarter yeah yeah much it's shorter. Still, it's still a good chunk of miles but yeah. it's a lot shorter for sure <laughs> yeah i've been dabbling I, well i've been transitioning this year to gravel biking and I, I'm not one like even my all my tours have always been kind of these long days. I'm I'm one of those guys that I'm very happy to do 200 kilometer days, you know, 15 days in a row. And um, so I've been doing some gravel and I've been trying to do these FKTs on local stuff. And I've hit two this year. Actually, the only two gravel rides I've done have been two FKTs, uh, fastest known times. But they're 800 kilometers of gravel, which probably equates to power wise like. 800 miles of road because you just lose so much more energy on the gravel. I know. And uh, yeah. so it's been really fun and it's been really interesting to, to, to dabble with sleep deprivation and uh, getting 45 minutes of sleep over two and a half days kind of thing. And yeah, it brings me back to my army days. And that's like, something right. like no, that was tough stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in 2011, in your first Ram, you, you, uh, I think you were the first woman overall. And you set a new course record for women, I believe. Is that right? Uh, no, for I'm that, not. maybe for the long course, perhaps, because uh. the, the course record Shanna Hogan has it, but it's for a shorter course, right? Uh, you okay. know, so so they do have a new longer course um, record. So I'm, I can't quite say that I, I there's people say that I did or I didn't. I don't know mm. for sure, but I did win that race in 20 in 2011. OK, cool. Yeah. And um I was going to say one of uh, one of the videos I was watching on your website actually. Uh, you talked about somebody like heckling you or not heckling you, but every time they pass you, kind of giving you negative comments, trying to to mess with you in the mental game. Um, and you talked about channeling that. Do you want to just touch on that? That might be really interesting for for listeners. Um, well, I mean, I think it's just a psychological thing of you know the competition. Of um, I mean, I don't think it was. I think it's just part of competition, yeah. right? Sometimes, you know, your brain isn't working properly. So you say things you shouldn't say. Okay. So yeah, I got some kind of negative comments and stuff, which was kind of unusual for that. This, you know, ultra endurance racing, I find it more of a friendly sport opposed yeah. to pro racing where it's, it was war out there. Like people don't just say things, they punch you, right? You know oh, okay. what I mean? Wow. Yeah. Like there's fighting, punching, kicking, people trying to put you in the ditch and stuff like that. Like, you know, it's aggressive. Like mm -hmm. you, people don't see that, right? You know, as spectators, but what's going on in that Peloton, it can be quite nasty, right? So, I mean, I'm used to that kind of stuff. It's the mental part of people trying to damage you mentally and stuff. So mm. that doesn't bug me. Fair enough. So your second Ram attempt going back in 2019, what was your what was your goal like to going back? I know you mentioned that you had retired and, you know, eight years later you said, oh, I'd like to go back. Why? Why? Well, I mean, I think I think, I think the things that you do in life, you want to be content with the, the finish or the outcome. 
And it never was. I just think I was so burnt out from racing so many years on the road. Because as a pro racer, you know, you start rate you you start training camp basically in February, okay. and you end the season in October. So imagine doing that for like eleven years, right? Yeah. And then transitioning into ultra endurance racing, which is even more training, not as much travel, but it's still a lot of time on the bike, and you know, and preventing you from doing other things, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so mentally, I was just completely burnt out, right? But it was, you know, something that just was in the back of my head saying, you know, I just need a good long rest. Eight years is a long rest, obviously. But yeah, I mean, I was just content to come back. And so what I did, I actually in 2018, I wanted just to see where I'm at. So I did the Silver State, um, the 508 in Nevada. Um, So I ended up actually winning that race and setting a new women's record, right? So I thought, okay, I still can ride my bike. And that was kind of the how it transitioned into Race Across America. And I said, you know, for my 50th birthday, that's going to be my present, right? But it was – that's a long time to take off the bike, like eight years. You do one little itty bitty race and go back into Ram because you forget, right? You know, so I mean, I was – I felt like I was prepared pretty good, but – like I said, you have to do it a couple of times just to remember muscle memory, <clears throat> to know how hard you need to push in the, yeah. you know, prior, prior to the race. Cause Ram is a completely different animal than any other race you can ever imagine. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and everyone is so different and it's not just a matter, matter, excuse me, of your physical ability. It's your mental ability to, to remember the kind of crap you're going to go through and kind of overcome it and still keep forward. Right. Because with race across America, Anything can happen and anything will probably happen. Like the worst will probably happen and you just have to be prepared for it. Mm. Okay. That makes sense. Did you achieve what you were looking for in 2019? No, not at all. (laughs) What were you hoping for? Listen, hold on. Let me, let me back up. I actually wrote it. I'm going to say about, because it was also uh, about 150K longer, I don't know, miles, 80 miles or something. Mm-hmm. So I wrote it, um, I think, 14 hours faster than I did in, uh, not 14, about 10 hours faster than I did in 20, 2011. Okay. So that was a, a yay, you know, but my goal was closer to 10 days, right? Um and that didn't happen. So we had a lot of issues. Navigational issues um, was the main thing. I think my training wasn't where it should have been. Mm-hmm. I came in a little bit tired. I did too much, um, kind of crammed in too many miles, not enough rest. So I was a little bit flat at the start, which is fine. But considering I'm, you know, I was still happy. But when you know you can do better, you want to yeah. do it again and again and again, right? You know, so I still feel I can do a heck of a lot better than, you know, the 10 days and 19 hours, right? Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. So I guess that's what missing. That's what you wanted you to go back. That's why you wanted to go back for a third time. And I know that 2020 didn't happen. Was it a bit of a, was there a bit of a mental or emotional like hit when you realized 2020's Ram was going to be canceled or, you know, your training and all these things? Oh, I, oh, absolutely. Everything was canceled. Right? Yeah. Well, most races, I the mean, I live canceled. in Canada, so all the races are in the United States. Like you can fly into the country, right? Yeah. But you can't, the land borders are closed and I have to bring in four bikes and my two vehicles and my crew and all my equipment. So it's not, it's not feasible really for me to, to fly over there unless I sell everything I own and then live in a cardboard box when I come back. Yeah. Right. You know, so I mean, you know, it's what it is. Uh, the thing is, you still have to be positive. Like I said, I still kept training like and we we did a like a 
practice race. We replicated the first three or four days of um, Ram. So, you know, in Canada, we just did a loop and stuff just to get the feel of it. And so your body doesn't forget. So, I mean, you do the best you can to adapt and that's what we did. And again, coming, even, even this year, I mean, it was so uncertain about the borders being closed and it was closed. I mean, just the logistics of getting across was, you know, a nightmare and an extra stress in itself, mm-hmm. let alone racing Ram, right? So, yeah. and, and who's to say what's going to happen next year? Our borders are still closed. Who knows? Right? Yeah. So you replicated a first few days. Where did you, did you just start like across BC and then through part of the prairies or did you kind of go up to Northern British Columbia or what was the? I went, we did up to Alberta. So I'm, we started, I'm in Vernon, British Columbia. So we went up to like Jam, Lake Louise. Okay. Um, that kind of, that kind of loop coming back down to, to Golden, Revelstoke. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that kind kind of yeah nice beautiful yeah yeah a little bit colder than our because their usual routes are we go down south into washington spokane area you know it's a lot you know a lot warmer than (laughs) minus 10 yeah well i'm I'm in ottawa so i think our winters are even worse yeah so you can relate (laughs) yeah what do you think uh i was was kind of mentioned it earlier but why why do you think so many people just keep going back to these races i know i know it's not cheap i know it probably costs uh you know unless you have you're really lucky with sponsorships covering like big money it definitely takes its toll but i see so many names where people just go back year after year um i just think it's for people who i mean the experience is like i mean you can't even describe it it's like just undescribable i mean of what you have to do and what it takes you know, to do a race like that, right. And the challenge, mm-hmm. you know, of how hard you have to push your, your body and yourself. And, and again, it's not just you, it's your, it's your crew as well. Right. Cause without a proper crew, I mean, you're not going anywhere, right. It's not yeah. you finishing the race. It's we finish the race, my team, my, you know, the team that's helped me help my crew that helped me get across the country. But I think it's just the challenge. Like there's nothing else that you could do. That's more difficult, you know? And, and the reason why it's difficult is it's not like you can just, ride like you know eight ten hours a day and, and rest or whatever you've mm-hmm. got 12 days to get across the damn country right so you have to be really systematic and plan everything and it's scientific and push yourself and you know so i think that's it's just a challenge and then the satisfaction of when you do make it across the country even if you don't win right you know it's just the biggest you know um joy and and experience that you know that you can high that you can ever experience yeah. right so i think that's what it is. It's like, it's like an addiction, right? You want that feeling again, right? Yeah. But it's good when you've worked so hard for something and then there's a huge payoff at the end. Yeah. I think that's like that with a lot of racing though. It's like you could be in the worst mental state, but when you're into that last couple hours or in a marathon, maybe you're into that last like five or 10 kilometers, all of a sudden you're fast and you're feeling great and you're like, for a while after, you might say, I'll never do this again. But then that type two fun changes. Exactly. And you're like, I yeah. do well, it's always like that. Like all the, yeah. I'll never do this again. And then 24 hours later. So when are we doing it again? Yeah. <laughs> you know it, I mean? it is impressive, though. I cycled last year from Vancouver to Whitehorse, then to Winnipeg. So 5,500 K and I did it in 29 days. And I think back and I'm like, I think about that. And I think people do that kind of distance in 10, 11 days when they're racing Ram. That is whew. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, uh, I was self-supported. Of course I didn't have, Yeah, that's that's tough. but that's a big, that's way harder than what I have to do. (laughs) And I had to stop and cook food and sleep and put up tents and (laughs) yeah, but still, I mean, they're all hard. It doesn't matter what you look at it, how you look at it. Yeah, absolutely. So I I mean, I realized that the, the fastest men finishing, uh, Ram, you know, they're hitting kind of the eight, nine, I guess eight day mark is pretty standard now. I presume going into to Ram 2021, you you never 
could have expected starting it that you would be the first solo overall finisher. It kind of worked out perfectly for you that it was the the, the mind. I guess well, it was the, the the weather killed people, right? Like not literally, hopefully, but. Uh, I mean, but Race Across America, you like you can never predict it, right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. you may do eight days or whatever, you know, in this this year, but next year you're going to have rain, hail, wind, storm. So it's so unpredictable of what right. your, you know, what your goals are going to be because Mother Nature has to be with you on your side, right? Like, as you know, this year it was the hottest weather the race has ever experienced. Like we hit temperatures of 50 Celsius and it wasn't just through the desert, through California, okay. Arizona, it carried on, you know, into, into Kansas, into Illinois, into Maryland. And it really never gave up. I think in the nighttime it would cool down to like 30 plus degrees, which is still warm. Right. But your yeah. body just wants the, some reprieve from that kind of heat. You know, I mean, even going through Kansas where it's normally the temperatures are in the mid twenties, kind of comfortable. Mm. It was 43, 43 Celsius with a headwind. That's when I started to swell. I burned right through my jersey because of the intense heat, you know. And then you have a lot of cow pastures. You got all the cow poop smell, whatever. So it doesn't help, like those kind of challenges, Mm -hmm. right? But it's those things that, you know, I didn't experience in my other two rounds, right? I mean, in 2019, we had a lot of hail and and rain and colder weather, right? But with heat, it's so much more challenging. And so even if you want to, you can't push yourself as hard as, you know, you think you should, right? Because it's, it's, this time was really to survive those temperatures more than anything else. Yeah. And how did you guys manage? I know, I know last Ram or 2019, you had hail and rain on end and you guys kind of prepared a, the scenarios of, okay, if the weather's like this, here's all the kit we need. What did you guys do to, to accommodate this ridiculous weather? I mean, I know in Northern Washington, it was 47 degrees and that's like in the very North of the country. Um, what did you guys do? Well, as you said, well, because of 2019, we had all this harsh conditions because in 2011, I had rain one day. So I was assuming, oh, it might rain here and there. So we didn't really bring a lot of rain gear, right? We brought enough, but but I mean, it was horrendous what I experienced in 2019. I mean, I had hail balls hit my head so hard that I had bruise on the side of my face, oh, right? Wow. And it was just... I mean, I remember riding all night for, I think it was like 19 hours and, and pouring, like, it was not just the sprinkling, it was solid rain. So, you know, so pre- to prepare for this round, I had all the best rain gear and I got my sponsors to make special coats and, and gloves and booties and rain pants. You think we pulled it out? We didn't even pull it out, right? Um, but, you know, we knew that it was going to be hot through the desert, obviously. So what I did that I didn't do in 2019 is I did go to Borrego Springs for, to, to climatize a little oh, bit okay. to the temperatures, right? However, a week before the race, the temperatures were really mild. Like it was like oh, mid thirties, right? Yeah. I could have stayed at home for God's sakes for mid thirties. Right. It was like and the, then the day before of the, race, the storm. Yeah. It, it jumped up to, you know, to 49. So that didn't work. But like I said, you know, with race across America, you know, you never know what you're going to get. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, so you got to be just prepared for everything. Awesome. And so I, I guess you're planning another Ram. You want to hit your 10 day mark. You, you bet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I just, I'm going to work, focus a little bit on the shorter races. If the borders open this year, like, I mean, Biden's supposed to make an announcement on the 21st mm-hmm. of August, then I'll do a race in Nevada. Um, it's called the 508. Okay. Uh, and then maybe in Texas, you know, just to get a couple of races in before the end of the season, mm-hmm. I'll take a bit of a breather and then I'll start up for raw, like so the sister race of Ram. And oh, then yeah. I'll focus on 2023 and, and go after that 10 day record. Sweet. That's amount. It sounds amazing. So you do talk about the physicality of this. Um, 
how many hours a week do you do you train? I mean, I'm assuming you kind of have taper weeks and stuff as well, but typically building up for Ram. Well, I mean, yeah, like I said, you build, you build up your hours, right? So I, in during my peak hours or whatever, like when I'm near the end of when I have to start tapering, it'll be up about like about 60 to 70 hours of a week. So it's, that's it's like doctor hours. <laughs> yeah. It's a full-time job plus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Without the overtime pay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was a lot of overtime pay, <laughs> you oh, wow. know, so. And I'm assuming there are similarities to, to duathlon to ultra endurance in the sense that you spend, you should spend more time doing zone one and two training where it's just like, you're not pushing so hard. You spend the majority of the time just building that endurance level. I mean, see, for me, I kind of like to replicate what I'm going to be racing mm-hmm. at. Like, for example, you know, Canada in our like, you know, in the kind of the midwinter to even in the spring, we're on this indoor trainer, right? I don't use any music or television or don't look at my phone because I find that kind of a distraction. So I kind of put myself in an environment that I'm going to feel like when I'm actually on the road, like in Kansas, for example, all you see is road for 20 hours, right? Mm. You know, so I mean, I just kind of hit up my trainer. I work, work on my cadence, my heart rate, my speed, my power, and my heart rate. You know, just listening to your own body, your body music, yeah. I'll call it, right? You know, um, and just, you know, riding different times of the day, not just starting the same time. You know, there, you know, a lot of people start their rides at 8, 9, 10 in the morning. I'll start sometimes at 3 in the morning to start at midnight, oh, you know. Okay. So the body is used to, okay, wow, okay, I'm, you know, I have to start. Got to get up, got to get on the bike, just no yeah, matter Yeah, exactly. Right? Oh, I like that. I never even thought of that as an option for training, like just yeah. Well, random, I think that's a, yeah. Well, I mean, some people, you know, they're always used to training once. I mean, even when I was pro racing, sometimes we had races that started at noon, right? You know, so your body is different mm-hmm. at noon and how much you have to eat before that, right? Opposed to seven in the morning, right? So just knowing where and how, you know, to warm up, to prepare mm-hmm. properly and how you're going to feel at different times of the day is super important. That's uh, really interesting because I was just reading a news article where one of the Russian Olympic athletes was complaining that it seems like the vast majority of the final events for the Olympics are being held in USA's morning time. So they're, or they're sorry, sorry, USA's evening, which is morning in Japan. And they're saying, well, why are we catering to them? Because I guess nobody trains getting up and racing first thing in the morning. You have your swim, your warm up swims, you race at nighttime. And, right. and so even Olympic athletes are, are not used to, to this concept of, hey, maybe you have to race full power first thing in the morning. Just well, I mean, then other people are going to complain why they're <laughs> catering to the United States. I mean, yeah, maybe you should get there a little bit earlier and then, you know, yeah. acclimate to the time change, right? You know, exactly. I, mean, I raced a lot in Europe and that's what we did. We went there like, you know, three or four days earlier because it takes the body time to adjust to the time zone, mm-hmm, right? For sure. You know, so, but there are no excuses. There's always a way to prepare for it, yeah, right? But, yeah. you know, sometimes we get a bit spoiled. <laughs> and I'm sure they knew the schedules for all the all the race times and finals ahead of time. Yeah. They'd probably... Oh, actually, I wanted to ask you next is, do you do a lot of strength training on top? So gym work and core and all that stuff, or is it mostly bike or how do, how do you manage your training? Yeah, I mean, I think um, like in my earlier, I mean, I honestly don't like going to the gym or strength training. I, I really don't like it. However, it is crucial and super important, especially for ultra endurance racing, because you need everybody, part of your body to be strong, your arms to support you, your neck to support your head, mm-hmm. you know, your lower back. So I do, I really did an intensive specific um, core work, especially for my neck, because I do suffer from the condition of Shermer's neck, right? You know, so yeah, I mean, that was a huge asset is, is 
being very specific with strength work. I think it's a huge asset. I, you know, I don't like the idea of, you know, not working the upper body as mm-hmm. well. I think, you know, cause I know a lot of cyclists, they want to be as light as possible. Yeah. Right. But if you're weak, you know, what I mean? you can't hold yourself up, then that's not a good sign either. Right. So, I mean, I'm not into heavy lifting and stuff. I mean, for, I guess for track riders, you know, perhaps. Right. But for what I need to do, and especially as you get older, because you lose a lot of your muscle mass, um, to to have something specific, at least a minimum of two to three times a week. Mm. Okay, thank you. Um, how do you prepare mentally for these kind of events? I know you said you just mentioned you don't listen to to watch TV, listen to to radio or podcasts or audiobooks. Um, what do you do to prepare mentally? Um, with regards to to staying focused on the bike? I think I just kind of, well, I reflect on, I I mean, when you do RAM once or twice, you you remember kind of where you were, how you felt, um, the different terrain, you know, the challenges that you had at certain points of the race. So I think just reflecting back of, of, um, of your past experiences, right. Mm. Kind of mentally, um, just having that picture in your head of, of the different routes and, yeah, that's the best you can do. And just being confident too of your your prep, your prep leading up to the race, right? Of how hard you've raced and the sacrifice and and the stuff you've gone through to get to where you're at, right? So I mm-hmm. think that's the biggest, you know, comfort for me is knowing that I put the work in, I did my homework and you know, I'm ready to to conquer this. Yeah, I know I, I always carry some wireless headphones with me when I'm on these bikepacking things and I've yet to wear them. I I get to the end, I'm like, why did I just carry those? I was just like so lost in my thoughts and having a good time and never really got to the point of playing. Like sometimes I might put music on the phone that just to hear it in the background a bit, but I'm not, I never listen to something so intently, you know, and just writing and. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, you kind of like, you know, you kind of get into your zone, right? I mean, for everybody, it's different. Sometimes the music, they get so um, hyped up and they're, you know, and nervous that they need the music to relax themselves mm-hmm. and stuff, you know, but for me, I think I just, um, for me, nervous is good. It's, it depends on how you use that energy where it's channeled in, right? You know, mm-hmm. to use it for power rather than to drain you. Because some people, they just don't function well under that kind of stress and pressure, right? But I think the worst part is the start, you know? Once you get into it, you're fine. It's just kind of getting to the line and all the pre-prep and, you know, that's that's the worst part for me. It's usually the, the 24 hours before. Okay. But, you know, as soon as the you're off and everything is gone. All the worries are gone and you're focusing on one thing is that's just to get across the country or, or to your, wherever your finish line is. Yeah. I've always worried that when I did triathlon and stuff that I was too relaxed beforehand. I see people that like pacing and they're like, <laughs> and I was just like, just chill, man, chill. <laughs> like, I very yeah, rarely yeah, felt exactly. nervous, but maybe that, that same reason I, I wasn't doing exceptionally well. Maybe I was just too relaxed. <laughs> um, how many people finished Ram this year? I think it was a very this low was number. the lowest finish they've ever had there was only i came in on this like you know 11 days later on the saturday at uh, i think five o'clock and then the second guy came in the next the next day at noon and then an hour after him the third guy and that was it there's just the three of us now is that i mean were there still lots of racers back or they had already dropped at that point and just well a lot of racers were really because there is a time cut right yeah, you know, know there's there is, yeah. point point check so yeah, there was a couple of racers back, but they, you know, they, the course is cut after 12 days, okay. right? You can still finish it, definitely. Mm-hmm. You can still, you know, ride it, which a lot of people do. They come in, you know, 13, 14, 15 days later or whatever because they want to make it across. But I think under those conditions, most people dropped out because of the temperatures. Yeah. Even even teams that they, they you know, I think half the teams dropped out as well. It was, oh, yeah, wow. it was the most dropout they've ever had. And yeah. And I'm wondering if like, 
if that's mostly mental, which has caused, you know, them to just give up? Or is it partially that and the crew, you know, like just not being able to manage the situation? I, I wonder, like, I'd be interested to know. Um, it's probably a combination, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think, like, like, again, I keep reflecting back on those temperatures, but I think it was like a lot of people ended up in the hospital. Some people passed out, you know, Um and I mean, for health reasons too, I don't know how healthy that is to mm-hmm. ride at 50 degrees Celsius for, for 10 days. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think it was just the, the, the uncomfort and mentally too, of not, not really being prepared for just to handle something like mm-hmm. this. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, it's probably it, I guess. Yeah. I think a lot of times in, in these races or even the events I've done, like your mental starts, it's so many people don't know that they can do it. So they let themselves give up mentally is, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. And a, a buddy of mine asked me, he's like, Hey, how were you after, you know, 800 kilometers of gravel in 59 hours? I said, I had some moments where I had to talk myself back into continuing. Yeah. Cause I was like, just really suffering mentally. And, and then he actually said, he sent me an interesting quote and I was going to read it here. And it's by a guy named David Goggins. He was a Navy SEAL. You might've, I'm not sure if you've heard of him. But uh, he would say that when your body or when your mind and body are starting to tire and you feel like giving up, you're only at 40% of what you're truly capable of achieving. And I thought that's really probably accurate to this situation because yeah. I think a lot of people give up and they, they still have so much to go, right? Yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, with that kind of race and with many races, even triathlons, duathlon, whatever it may be, it's going to be a little bit of a roller coaster ride. You're going to hit those lows and you're going to hit those highs and you're going to hit those lows. But when you do hit those lows, I mean, that, that's the hardest part is knowing that it'll get better, right? Yeah. You know, because it's like for me, like, you know, quitting Race Cross America if in, in, in those low situations, I knew that if I did, I would regret it, you know, for the rest of my life or I can suck it up and at least say I gave it my best shot, even if it's not the outcome that you want or, or that I wanted, mm-hmm. but just making it or, you know, achieving your finish or whatever it may be. Um, that that's the biggest victory, right? It's mm-hmm. when, when the going gets tough, right? Because I, I find too that patterns are often repeated that once you quit once, it's just easy to do it again and again and again. Yeah. But once you've gone through something really difficult and you're able to make it to your finish line or achieve whatever you're doing, um, it just makes you stronger for next challenges. And it's just a it's just a builder for confidence and, ah, and determination. So it's just, it makes you stronger. So that's why quitting, I said, it should never be your option unless it's life-threatening. Yeah. Yeah, I guess if you can finish one thing you didn't think you could finish, next time you're in that situation, you think back and you say, hey. Exactly. I did it once. Or you reflect back. You go, listen, look what I went through before. There's no reason why I can't do that again, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so like I said, it's it's important to to always make it, like I said, even if it's not the outcome. Even if you finish RAM in 20 days, like, you know, finish it. And then you have something, you know, to hang on to for your next, for the next time you want to do something. Right. But mm-hmm. yeah. And I just find it, I saw that a lot in pro racing when, you know, you get dropped from the group with the Peloton, we call it. Right. Yeah. A lot of people actually just drop out, especially in crit races, you know, those short circuit races, you know, ah, I would, like I said, when I was, when I was pro racing, those circuit races, I'd get lapped by the whole, whatever, but I never <laughs> not finished. Yeah. I never not finished. I always, like I said, coming dead last, but it makes you, you know, it makes you, like um determined right mm-hmm. well, i'm gonna finish this i'm gonna do this and it took you know it took me a heck of a lot many years to do it but eventually i started lapping the field right you know what i mean because you learn right yeah. from getting your ass kicked a little bit <laughs> yeah i think i've only ever quit one race and that was a marathon in singapore and i probably shouldn't have gone in the first place because i knew my knee was not feeling great and then at about the 10k mark it was like 
I was just doing this hop and shuffle and I thought like, why am I doing this? I have other things I want to do this summer that I don't need to injure myself. Like for, and it had no real merit. And I was like, I lived an hour away from Singapore. So I was like, I can keep biking all summer or I could try to finish this and ruin myself and the whole, you know, next right. two we months. We just have to weigh out, right? Like yeah. the, the, you know, the pros and cons of yeah. what you're doing, right? You know, for sure. But that was the only one. And it pissed me off big time. I was like, oh, I'm so mad I quit it. But I'm like, it was probably for the best <laughs> in that situation. Um, time for a quick interruption to thank some of the Bike Tour Adventure partners. Bike Tour Adventures podcast is proud to be partnered with Redshift Sports. Founded in 2013 by a team of mechanical engineers who happen to be avid cyclists, they've been focused on creating components that make a meaningful difference to the riding experience, such as the switch aero system, the shock stop suspension system, and the kitchen sink handlebar system. I've been using the dual position seat post paired with the shock stop stem since 2020 and have nothing but great things to say about their products. Beginning in 2010 with environmental sustainability as the main focal point, Restrap has been in the bag-making business for quite some time. Having used a raceback since 2021, I find their holster system and magnetic buckles to be extremely effective and truly unique. Named after the animals that roamed the Tibetan Plateau, Cheru Endurance Bikes was started by Pierre Arnaud Le Manga in 2009. After noticing a lack of endurance bikes on the market, Pierre used his expertise, know-how, and racing experience to create high-end carbon fiber and titanium bikes for the discerning rider and racer. For discount codes, check out the show notes or go to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast website. Let's, uh, I just want to ask you, I know you mentioned that the, the support crew and that you've been really fortunate to have this, uh, this amazing, amazing support crew for for all these different races, how did you put this crew together and how has it kept coming back? <laughs> well, that's the thing that your, your crew is crucial. It's the most important part actually of the race, right? Because I have a crew of nine people. So you have three in the follow car. Cause you always have to have a follow car right? Um, and three on spare. So they make the rotation. And then I have three in the RV and the RV is my hotel. It's where, when I need to rest, that's where I go. Right. Cause you're not always going to have a hotel where you want to get off the bike. Right. right? So that, that RV stays close to me. Um, and you have, you know, I had a kinesiologist, a massage therapist. I had a, a RMT in there. You know, you have a navigator in there. Um, it's just a, you're bringing a whole city across, right? And it's very systematic. Um, yeah. Uh, and I just can't uh, stress how important it is to have a good group of people. And it's very difficult to have a group of people that are working in tight quarters for, you know, 10 to 12 days together. They're hungry. They're sleep deprived. They're tired. You they're know? also stressed. But yeah. I'm also fortunate enough to have the same crew members with me you know, through the start of my kind of ultra endurance career, right. You know, just a few new ones here and there, but the core of my crew have been with me a hundred percent of the way. And I just can't thank them enough. That's, that's amazing. And are they mostly all from the British Columbia area or are they kind of spread out all over? It's a mix. I mean, I have a lot in the, in United States. Um, and yeah, I'm going to say probably about 70% of them, like, you know, like I think four or five or four of them were from here, from okay. the Canada and then the rest from the United States. Oh, okay. Neat. Yeah. Very awesome. I wanted to ask you also about sleep. How have you adapted? Like how has your sleep scheduling and stuff adapted and changed over the years? 
I, I assume that's also something that you slowly master the more times you race these big races. Well, from what I understand, that's the one thing you can't train. I think based on the science that, okay. you know, it's either you have it or you don't, right? Because you know how some people, they just need their eight to 10 hours or they completely can't function, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we all know those kind of people, right? Yeah. And there's people like me who don't need that much hours, you know, because even when I'm, you know, not racing, like I don't sleep usually more than five or six hours at okay. the most, you know, um, but our, our, what worked best for, for me during these races is when we start race across America, the first 40 hours I ride, and then I start taking my first break after 40 hours, then I'll go down for three hours. And then you ride for 24 hours and you go down again. So it's a 24 hour you know, three hour, 24 hour, three hour. Okay. And then the last three days of the race, we drop, we cut that three hour to 90 minutes. Okay. So that system kind of worked best for me because when we tried to cut my sleep too early in 2019, it kind of backfired, right? Because when you're starting, you know, to fall asleep on the bike, you're not being very productive, right? You know, yeah. or when you have to get off your bike for a 10 minute power nap, you're also wasting a lot of time. So the new system we had was, I think, worked best for us. Okay. And is there a certain time of the day you find it most difficult to stay awake? I mean, I we usually ended up that I went to bed between midnight and two or three in the morning, right? Because okay. I have a hard time sleeping during the day because that's, you know, that's what get, keeps you up, right? Yeah. You know, so I didn't want to waste any, any of my time sleeping during the day, which I know some people can, but I just can't, right? You know, nighttime was the best. And then, so when I wake up, because, you know, in the summertime in June, I mean, at four o'clock in the morning, you have light already. The sunrise, so it kind yes. of works perfectly. So I'm waking up to light or it's starting to get light. And it's in your face because you're driving yes, east, exactly. right? So. Well, you can feel it, right? You can see the, the sky starting to mm-hmm. lighten up a little bit, even if it's dark, right? You know, so... Yeah. That was kind of the strategy behind that is to try and sleep and then getting up close to the morning time. And do you do caffeine pills or coffee on the Sorry? bike? Do you use caffeine pills or anything like that? No. Oh, my gosh. No, I can't use any. I don't drink coffee or whatever. Okay. I think I'd have a heart attack. <laughs> no. Yeah. I've, I've used caffeine pills, but I find that they really wreck the stomach. Like you just feel yeah. like you're getting sucker punched. And yeah. 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 No. So and I think too, I think maybe with really short races where you want to maybe, because in pro racing, we used to like drink Coke the last half an hour of a race to get that pump. But with ultra endurance racing, you'd have to keep that going. Like, you know what I mean? Cause you can crash off that if mm-hmm. your caffeine drops and you've been pushing yourself so hard. So I think that would just backfire. Right. You know I mean? Mild caffeine, like green tea, maybe like, close to the end of before you're going to go down or something like that. But for me, it, it just doesn't work. Like you said, stomach upset and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I just like to keep it clean. Right. Okay. And do you, do you have a, do you have to do things like, uh, I'm, I'm assuming you're connected with an earpiece to your team in the van or in the. Yeah. Well, yeah, I have a radio. I'm radioed onto my crew all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Cause they have to know, you know, if I need anything or give me direction navigational wise, or if I have an issue, then they have to know. So okay. yeah, you're on 24 seven. Yeah. And do they, do they have to use, like, do you, are you ever to the point where you're so sleepy that they, they're telling you stories, jokes, things like that, or you're usually pretty good. And it's like, if it's not relevant to the race, it's, it's kind of quiet. Um, well, I mean, honestly, I don't like too much distraction. Even okay. if I'm sleepy, it just bugs me. Right. You know? Um, no, I think, I mean, I'm pretty, they're pretty perceptive too. like when I'm tired, like even when you're really tired, um, things that they would give me like i eat some crackers or something because you're chewing on something right Mm. you know what i mean that'll keep me awake more than irritating noise in my ear right (laughs) you know (laughs) so but uh, i mean we were pretty on right 
and also if you are starting to fall asleep and starting to you know be a little bit wobbly on the bike it's probably a good idea to get off the bike because it could be really dangerous right you know and same with the hallucinations right like not this year this year i controlled them but like example in 2019 I hallucinated that a black panther was leaping out towards me. So I veered over to the other side of the road. So you think about that, like those kind of situations can be quite dangerous, yeah. right? So especially for road riding. Yeah. Like, yeah, no kidding. And so, I mean, yeah. So how I control my hallucinations now is I can't look around. Like, you know, when I'm riding, I have to just look at the road. Okay. So whatever I see, it's going to be little things on the side, but yeah, that's how I can kind of control the, the, you know, your brain fog uh, or whatever that I'm going to try can that happen when you're, when you're super tired, right? Yeah. I told my wife I saw a 30 foot bear and it took me about two seconds. To, I mean, I was, it was so out of this world. I'm like, well, no bears 30 foot. Okay. I'm just seeing things, you know? Like, yeah. Um, but then you see some other things. You're like, why are these animal carvings in the wood? Like, doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Or things turn into like those big boulders turn into monsters or like, you know, images mm-hmm. like, you know, they just turn into creatures and stuff. Right. So yeah. as I said, with me, I just have to, you know, look forward and not, not look around too much at different things. And that, that's kind of a way I control my hallucinations. Okay. Uh, I'm going to try that. Yeah. Another thing I know is really important and something I've read particularly with like the, um, unsupported racing is to try to keep that percentage of time riding as high as possible throughout your, your overall event. And they say, you know, for shorter events, if you're at 90%, that's really good. If you're getting, you know, longer events, you might be getting down to like the 80, 85%. How, how much time do you guys, I mean, supported is a different game. Um, how much time do you try to be on the bike in a day? How often do you stop? What do you stop for? Um, what are those kind of things? You don't stop. I mean, when you're like, again, supported, unsupported are two different things. Of course, when you're unsupported, you have to stop a lot more, but when you're supported, there's nothing that you can't do on the bike. You can eat on the bike. You can brush your teeth on the bike. The things that you can't do on the bike is go to the bathroom and go mm-hmm. to sleep. So those are the only times you get off the bike to go to the bathroom or go to sleep. And right? I think you I know? saw a picture, a video of you brushing your teeth or was it a picture? Oh, I don't yeah, remember. I was, oh yeah. I was brushing probably <laughs> three or four times a day. And then I was also rinsing with peroxide because, you know, with all the carbohydrates, you get thrush, right? And yeah. it really hurts when your mouth, mouth kind of swells like what baby gets from all the carbohydrates. Yeah. So yeah, you want to keep that clean, but it's, everything is on. And it makes you feel good too when you have a nice, yeah, it probably wakes you up, I think. Yeah. Yeah. No. And or, or a bike change. Like if I'm coming into a big climb or something, then I'll go off my time trial bike onto a road bike. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, so, and everything is like an Indy car, you know, how it's a fast transition, not messing around. There's no need to talk to me. We it's fast, fast, fast back on because you think about it every time you get off the bike of how much time you're wasting when you calculate that over, you know, 10 to 12 days, yeah. that's hours that you could be sleeping or doing something more productive. Right. Yeah. I, I was looking at my stats not long ago and I, was, I, you know, in my 59 hours, I was on the bike for 47 and I was like, damn it. Yeah. Why am I on the bike so little? <laughs> And I, right. I do the percentage. I was like, oh, it's different. I'm like, yeah. that's that's 79%. That's not terrible, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like, again, when you have a supported crew, I mean, they're giving yeah. you everything, right? So I, because I've done a lot of long rides that's unsupported and I actually have a timer, right? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That I'd set the timer and, but some things you can't control. You have to go to the store and re, you know, there's in a, a line. lineup at the cashier yeah. and you're, you know, pulling out your money and trying to get it all tucked in and putting the, you know, your drink into your water bottle. So mm-hmm. it's all time, right? You know, so. And yeah. you don't have the luxury of having a bathroom follow you, right? No, exactly. <laughs> you know I mean? So, you know. So your your van your support car, so you have the van. Does the van have a washroom as well or just the RV? 
No, just the RV. Well, actually, let me No, We made actually a makeshift bathroom, like a, like a bucket that you'd be used as a whatever yeah. with wood chips and stuff. You have okay. to be creative, right? Yeah. So if that nature calls and there's no RV, then, you know, that's like your, a compostable toilet, compostable yeah, toilet exactly. type thing. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Very awesome. Uh, good to know. Interesting to, to hear. I know it's different for girls than boys too. I mean, as a guy, you just stop on the side of the road and have a pee. Um, yeah, girls. Well, I mean, you can do that with the girl too. We just had a sheet, right? But sometimes you got to do number two, right? Yeah, so that's exactly. a different story. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Same that's for just guys. Natural. I mean, what do you do? <laughs> um, so I wanted to jump forward, but I think it's just it's just phenomenal that how you persevered through through all that heat when you know clearly the vast majority of competitors just decided to pull the plug. So uh, to you and the other two, they listen. Uh, amazing. Thank you. Very good. Thank you. Now, I know you wrote a book called No Limits, and I think that was published in 2015. Is that correct? Yeah, I think it was 2050, 26. Yeah, it's published a while. Yeah, and it's probably going to be rewritten now. So oh, I was going <laughs> to ask, is there going to be a little that, addendum yeah. putting into it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, a lot of things have happened between then and now. And I think um, we're going to be hope maybe I mean, I can't say right now, but we're going to be working with a different publishing company. Okay. So yeah, so that, I mean, hopefully, fingers crossed that that's there's going to be a transition next couple of weeks with that. Oh, amazing! Can you tell us about the book and what prompted this uh, project? Sure. Like, I mean, when I came back from the Middle East um, and I started pro racing, I didn't talk a lot about the things that I did because a lot of the people that I worked with were still working. Right. right? So just for security reasons, I didn't didn't say much as a really yeah, general. Safety. But when people started to find out more about my background, they said, oh, my God, you know, you should write a book. It would be so interesting, blah, blah, blah. And I remember saying, you know, I'd never do that in a million years. And I'd never in a million years because I'm kind of a, a private person, Right. Um, but then I started to speak. I started doing presentations and I was hired um, by Speakers Canada to do many different presentations, many different corporate groups, you know, youth groups, sports teams, whatnot, women's organizations, you know. And there was the feedback that I got after of people saying, you know what, there's something you said that I just really needed to hear. And mm. I think the impact of, you know, kind of the hardships of going way back when and stuff that I've gone through. And I thought, you know what, maybe I should write the book. Maybe that would be a good idea. Right. You know, so you know, I started to write, it was hard to find the right person, you know, to actually write the book. I, I found it, you know, found her actually after the first one, which didn't work out. And what I did with the writer actually, we went back to the Middle East and I, she spoke with, you know, my commanders and the Brigadier General and people oh, from the military. Cool. So she get the experience. She saw the base that I worked at. You know, we got into certain locations that most, you know, civilians can't get into just to get the real feel of it. Right. Um, and it took us, I'm going to say almost like seven years to complete it. Oh, wow. That long. I wanted it yeah. to be as authentic as possible. Right. And all that time, more stuff happening. You're adding mm-hmm. more stuff, you know. So we're, we're pretty happy of the book. We're get, getting great feedback right now. And hopefully we're going to pump that even more working with the new publishing company. Oh, that but sounds amazing. That's just in the works right now. And so you've also been doing motivational speaking. And I guess this, like you said, it started kind of around the same time. Or you, how did you get into that? Was it just you said speakers, Speaker Canada? Sorry, how did you call it? Yeah, no, I sorry, what was the question? Sorry, I how, did, how did you become a motivational speaker? And um, okay, well, I, well, I it's funny, my my friend, uh, she was having an event in one of her hotels, right? You know, and she was having youth groups, like a 
uh, a youth. I, I remember what it was. It was a, like a girls club or something. And I started speaking and it was the first time. And actually Linda Edgecombe, I don't know if you've heard of her. She's one of the best, like, you know, voted number one speaker in the world or okay. whatever. And she has multiple, I mean, she's been doing it for 30 years. She was there. And at first when she saw me, she didn't give me the time of day. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then she heard me speak and then she kind of ran up to me and she goes, Oh my God. And she actually kind of helped me, you know, become a better speaker, help with my PowerPoint. And she got me more, you know presentations then i got picked up by numerous you know agencies and stuff so that's kind of how it started you know um yeah and i really love it like when i have mostly speak in the off season you know when i have time and yeah i I think it's it's satisfaction again when you get people coming up to me you know you saying it's they love what your message and it's helped them and i get messages you know months after i've done spoke people saying you know they were stuck at a roadblock so things like that really you know make it all worth it even though it makes me still really nervous right (laughs) so that's kind of how it it started from from that oh that's really neat i didn't know that it was such a uh, organization driven thing so like i thought i always kind of wondered well how does somebody become a motivational speaker because like how do you make all these connections but i guess there are agencies that well i think it's feedback too of people and then you know i was getting calls from different companies to come speak with their group different corporate groups you know i've spoken to the international police department i mean uh, yeah it's just a a series of different organizations right so um because i think my story it doesn't just hit the athlete it hits almost everybody right of some of the Mm -hmm. things you've gone through of, of life you know and sometimes hearing somebody else's story helps you with whatever you're going through. Right. You know, it's kind of gives you clarity. So yeah, that's why I enjoy it so much. Mm -hmm. So what other work do you do? Or is that kind of it between the racing or the endurance spiking and the motivational speaking and, and your book, how else do you keep busy? I mean, not have much time for anything. Well, I was, I was coaching for a bit and I was working. Yeah. Um, and I do some real estate. This is where I may make my real money. (laughs) The other one kind of grabs my money. You know what I mean? So, but yeah, I mean, between the, the book touring and then the motivational speaking training, it kind of doesn't leave much time for anything else. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) I was going to ask if you dabbled at all with like, uh, coaching for ultra endurance and stuff. I know that there's, there's a few out there, but it's not such a big sport yet that there's that many coaches around. Right. Well, I was trained well because of my background in in pro racing, I've, I've coached a lot there too. Right. But it's just the time because when I coach, I really like hands-on, right. I like to be there. I like to see what you're doing. I like to see what your style is Mm -hmm. like, you know, um, so, cause I can't just send a program, go, okay, go do it. Then we'll do a, a zoom call and let's, you know, see, yeah. I don't personally, I don't like that kind of coaching. I like my coach to be there. Um, so with my clients, it was very time consuming, mm-hmm. right? Cause I was going kind of go based on their schedule. And so I just thought, you know, for me to feel satisfied, I can't do that being so busy. Right. Mm-hmm. But, you know, maybe when I'm not racing as much, you know, I would probably go back to that and, and start taking on more clients again, mm-hmm. maybe in about 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> so over the past 10 years since doing your first ram have have you noticed much growth in the number and women participating in these events oh yeah for sure i mean i think it's grown really in europe right i've okay. never i don't remember so many like tour across you know mexico and and italy and poland and france you know so i think the ultra world is really exploding right now um like again, more and more in Europe, but I think there's more races in the United States as well. So it, it is growing. It's just, it's just a shame that we don't get the exposure, like, you know, television wise, media wise, because a lot of people don't really know what the race is, but when they find out they, they love it and they're so interested. Right. Mm-hmm. Because again, 
you know, you don't have to be a pro racer to do this kind of race, right? Because a lot of it is upstairs is what you got upstairs, right? You know, and anyone can do it. There's so many different categories. You can even do it as a team thing. So it's very friendly. It's a very friendly sport and it's open to anyone. Again, you don't have to be a pro racer. You don't have to train, you know, 60 hours a week. You just get a group of people together and go do a race. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. And I, I think you missed the one word I threw in there, but that was a great answer about endurance racing was about for women, uh, women in the sport and women participation. Have you seen a big growth in that as well? Yes. I mean, I think the level two, I mean, I think with ultra endurance racing, the playing field with men um, comes a little bit more mm-hmm. even, right? Because it's not based again on, you know, your physical ability, right? On just on strength and whatever. It's a combination of everything of, of your training, of your mental, of your sleep, of your, how much you can take of the, how much pain you can take, you know? So I think that's how it becomes a little bit even because yeah. women can take a lot of pain. Trust that, me. I know that's, <laughs> I think I had actually read that. That was one of the explanations somewhere I'd read that saying, you know, <laughs> women give birth, they can deal with pain. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I've never had a baby, but I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> What kind of feedback have you received from from girls and women since your victory uh, a few weeks back now, I guess? Oh, I mean, it's been super positive, especially um, single mothers or mothers with little girls or even fathers, you know, um, with little girls saying that women can do anything. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, the feedback has been amazing. It's it really very unexpected but you know it's it's great and i'm glad that it's given such a positive impact to not only to to girls but to men too little boys little girls Mm -hmm. teenagers elderly people in their 50s you know 60s whatever you know i i like i think it's amazing that you know you're you're in your early 50s and you're doing this and you're showing it can be done i'm 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 41 at the moment but i know that i'm just getting into my um endurance type uh, lifestyle. So I've got years to go with it. And it makes me happy to know that, you know, the ability and the po- the possibilities are endless. Yeah. It, yeah. Like I said, I mean, with ultra racing too, when you're retired, you have time, right? To train. So that's why I think a lot of people peak in their later years, right? Because they have the time to do it, right? But I mean, yeah, it's just a sport that, you know, it's just, a, like I said, it's a friendly sport mm-hmm. and get a group of people to do it and you go to a race and it's always fun, right? To do yeah. something like that, to achieve something, to train together. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 great for everybody, whether, whether you're competitive or not. And I think the mindset too, as you get older, you you have this ability to to disregard the fluff. And when you're younger, you know, the mind games, it's much harder to, to push that level. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you have a, you mean you grow every year, right? You mm-hmm. have a different perspective on things. So yeah, I mean, it just hits everybody in different ways. Right. But yeah, I mean, like I said, it's, it's just a great sport for everybody. Okay. And you mentioned that you have some races, uh, hopefully in the U S coming up this year. I wanted to ask, have you considered any other ultra endurance races that are as long or close to as long, such as like the race across Europe or, um, unsupported ones like the Trans Am or um, Tour Divide? It, that's funny. I, I I was looking at the one that's unsupported, but I think I'd get so lost I'd end up in China. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> just, my navigation is so bad. Like, you know what I mean? So I, that just worries me a little bit, right? Um, I haven't really thought about anything in, in Europe because I just honestly, the expense of just getting a crew and your bike and you know, and I, I have great sponsors, but it's product sponsors, right? It's yeah. hard to get a cash sponsorship just because, again, the sport isn't, you know, as televised or out there as, as many other sports. Mm-hmm. So 
I mean, there's so many races out here to do and challenges. I mean, I mean, I'd be dead if I tried to do yeah, all that, yeah. right? You know what I mean? So I think for now, I'll just stick here. The one thing I would like to do maybe a little bit later on is to do some uh, ultra endurance running races, right? Oh, like bad water. So yeah. that's kind of something that kind of, because I use running um, as my cross training in the winter time and I really like doing long distances. So, mm. you know, I mean, it's just a challenge that I think personally that I like to definitely on my bucket list. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's a, it's a good, it's a good cross training system. Well, I mean, running is so easy too. All you need is a pair of really good running shoes, right? You know what I mean? mm-hmm. Some shorts and a, and a jersey and off you go. And a credit card for the hotel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So where can people find you? I mean, other than the roads around the Okanagan Valley. I think the best way is the website is leahgoldstein.com or on Facebook. That's for Instagram. Yeah. Perfect. And, way, yeah. and have I missed anything that you wanted to talk about that I uh, kind of Just forgot? to mention, we are, uh, there's a documentary that's going to be coming oh, out okay. hopefully um, in early next year or in the spring. We're just wrapping it up right now. Uh, it started in like 2018. So, and it's not just about Race Cross America. It's about everything. Like yeah. about basically the book on, on the screen. So we're excited about that. And like I said, it'll be coming out hopefully early next year. Oh, that's Fingers really crossed. cool. That'd be fun to see. And that's, yeah. is it going to be called No Limits or it's going to have a different name? Or it's Yeah, No Limits. No Limits. Oh, exciting. All right. I'm looking forward to that. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time, Leah. Um, I have no other questions. Um, it was really, really interesting and amazing. And I think it's just awesome. Congratulations on everything. Hey, everyone. Before we end this podcast, I'd like to tell you about some of Bike Tour Adventure's other amazing partners. Very proud to be supported by Brockton Cyclery, a Toronto-based bike shop dedicated to bike touring and bikepacking. Carrying many of the top bike touring and bikepacking brands, I can honestly say that they have helped me to build the most durable and fast bikepacking bike possible. We're also supported by Race Day Fuel. Their mission is to ensure that you consume the very best and appropriate food and beverage for the task at hand. Working with top brands such as Scratch, Noon, and Untapped, They have all your nutrition needs taken care of. For discount codes, check out the show notes or go to the Bike Tour Adventures website. Well, thank you so much for having me. And maybe that money sponsor will come in soon. (laughs) Maybe. Uh, Who knows? (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm going to just end the recording and then uh, we'll be off live. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast to help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated, and keep on pedaling. <laughs>